Hello, what's going on, my fellow true crime junkies? It's Andrew here, and welcome to Confused and Homicidal! So this week, as you can tell, there is no Tori with me. Unfortunately, she could not make this recording session, but there will she will definitely be back in hopefully the near future. There is an episode that we finally managed to record together over Zoom. We did it. So that one, I tried my best. We did our best with what we had. So I'm sure I think that one's going to go out before this one. Yeah. So this week I'm obviously homicidal, and all of you guys can be confused for, as, I mean, you guys always are, but especially confused today, because there's no one else to be confused. But yeah, again, sorry about the not consistent uploading, hopefully after this, because this one will be a multi-parter for sure. Hopefully after this, the uploads will become more consistent. I definitely did a lot, a lot, a lot of research for this one, so this is what took this one even more time to get out, but hopefully we'll get back on a more consistent schedule. And then in September, it'll definitely be back to a regular schedule, because that's, that's when I'm starting school again, and once I'm at school, things will be a lot easier. I don't have to worry about when I can record, when I can't record, because of my parents, and all that good stuff. So, um, oh, and Tori and I will be on a lot similar of, of schedules at that point, but I'm also working right now, and that's been taking the majority of my time. On that note, let's get into the case. So, this week, this time, today, right now, we are going to be talking about Richard Cottingham, aka the New York Ripper, the Torso Killer, among other various names, including uh, the Times Square Killer and similar stuff to that. This is not to be confused with the Cleveland Torso Murderer, which, who is also known as the Kingsbury Run Torso Killer. Not the same. The this, They got the, the, the torso killer part in common, but definitely not the same. Not the same person. With this episode, and this is probably most likely, like, I know for sure, it's definitely going to be a multi-parter. Um, so, with all of these, I'm going to give a really big content warning. Um, in these episodes, there's going to be uh, descriptions of violent sexual assaults, graphic descriptions of rapes, murders, and yeah, just extreme violence, and yeah. <laughs> so, with that having been said, let's get into it. Richard Cottingham was born on November 25th, 1946, in the Bronx, New York. He had a typical childhood, although he did have trouble making friends at times, but overall it was, he was, he had a very typical, very normal childhood, and nothing too un, un, out, out of the ordinary happened. When he was in seventh grade, Cottingham moved to River Valley, New Jersey which was later in 2007, it was ranked as 29th in, out of 100 in the top 100 places to live in the United States. So it was a nice area. It was low crime, just 
overall a really good place to live. He grew up in a middle class family. It was described as very loving. And a former classmate of Cottingham is quoted to have said, I know his mother was devoted to him. So overall, this all being said, it was a very loving household, very normal. There, I couldn't find anything about any sort of abuse or anything that might have happened in his childhood. It was really just a normal, good household, yeah. So Cottingham attended St. Andrew's co-ed parochial school. He did have little to no friends, and because of that, he started a hobby of raising homing pigeons at his home, which is just kind of a fun tidbit. It's not necessarily something that like pointed to what he would do in the future, but it was just something fun I put in there, which is true. But <laughs> when Cottingham made it to high school, that's when he started making new friends, when this was when he enrolled in Passac Valley High School. Sorry if I said that wrong. And people generally seemed to like him. He was a very likable dude. Newman, who is a classmate of Cottingham's, described him by saying, quote, I met Richard on the athletic field. Richard stood apart in that he wasn't always at practice. He wasn't a joiner. He didn't have a nickname. And he wasn't part of our clique. He was kind of a wise guy attitude about him. I don't think he was crazy about authority, I believe, end quote. So, pretty much just a, a normal high schooler at that point. He was kind of a loner, but he wasn't on, the, like, with the popular kids at all. But, you know, it was a normal life. He wasn't crazy about authority. That is that is something that comes comes back, but that was kind of his only major red flag. At this high school, Cottingham had a group of three core friends, and out of those three, he was evidently the leader, so he, he ran everything, and everyone in that group looked up to him, for sure. But having said that, Cottingham was pretty normal, nothing extraordinary, just he was removed from the mainstream a little bit, but he was said to be attracted to girls, but never really had a girlfriend. He didn't, I don't know, he must not have had, he must not have had good game, I guess. But Newman, who is the classmate of Cottingham, later says, oh, When he spoke about women, it was kind of in a negative way. I certainly remember him talking among his friends, and perhaps in gym class, about what girls attract. He would talk about girls in class, or the girls out on the street who were better endowed, larger breasted. That just sort of seemed to be a key attraction for him. End quote. And it's at this point where uh, breasts became extremely fetishized by him to the point where it became uh, paraphilia. Um, <laughs> so what that means, and I'll go this, into this uh, more in a second, but he needed like breasts around him to spark the sparky big time, which is BTK for being aroused. <laughs> so what is a paraphilia? They're abnormal sexual desires that may include extreme or dangerous activities. These can include extreme fetishes, exhibitionisms, pedophilia, fraucherism, transcitism, I think, I don't know, sorry, voyeurism, extreme sexual masochism and sadism, and necrophilia. Paraphilia can cause difficulty in developing personal and sexual relations, and they usually turn up in people's teenagers, like their teenage years, or maybe a little bit younger, but they last into their adulthood. And then from there, they generally tend to dissolve over time, or not dissolve, but diminish over time, and it gets better from there. Men are 20 times more likely to develop these, 
and scientists have no idea how they develop, but, but even because of them, most people are still able to live normal lives. Most people. This was not Cottingham. He's eventually erupted in a blood-soaked burst of violence. Cottingham's two paraphilia were people with large breasts and his desire for sadistic sex. He had no partner at the time, and at this time, his fantasies were enough for him. But then, at some point, it became that they weren't enough. And that's later when it became a game to him, albeit a game with unwilling participants. He eventually goes on to blame porn magazines for his paraphilia. And things just got worse as time went on, and they just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And... It was both his paraphilia, his desire for breasts, and his extreme narcissism that kept him going. He thought he was above the world, and he would see his victims as nothing more than his play toys, as he, that he can do as he wishes. Well, that's in the future. At this point, Cottingham graduated high school in 1964. In his pictures, he looked very well put together. He wore a suit, he had a shirt and tie, he just altogether looked pretty pretty put together. <laughs> but there was no happiness or a smile on his face whatsoever. He wasn't happy. In spite of this, after graduation, Cottingham worked as a computer operator at his father's insurance company, which was named Metropolitan Life. He used this facade to blend in and also to take more classes and to inflate his resume. But after two years of working at his father's company, Cottingham moved on to work at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Greater New York. He worked with someone named Dominic Volpe, and this person will come back for sure. We'll talk about him a lot, because he would later testify against Cottingham in his trial. Together, they worked the 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift. He used his mornings and late nights to hang out in S&M clubs, which are sadism and masochism clubs and it was there that he learned the fine art of domination, and he used this time to explore and expand his sexual deviancy. And this is where his double life really started. The first victim that we'll talk about, it happened on Friday, October 27th, 1967. This was a year into his new job at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Greater New York. Nancy Vogel was on her way to play bingo at church, but when she never got there, and or never returned home, everyone was very worried. Her husband Henry called, called the church, they said she never showed up, and she never came back. So the next day, her husband, he <laughs> reported her missing, and a search was quickly conducted, but she was not found, and really nothing was done about it. Three days later, on Monday, October 30th, 1967, Two 12-year-olds noticed a, quote, waxy mannequin in a car on the street. But when they got closer, they realized it was a body. They saw the sights and smelled the smells. It was not a pretty thing. They quickly were, ex I mean, they were shocked by it. Um, and they quickly ran to a neighbor, and they called the police. The body was later identified to indeed be Nancy Vogel. She was found beaten and strangled, she was naked, her hands were tied in front of her by nylon cord. And oddly enough, her clothes were found neatly folded and 
put under her body. And this is something that comes back a lot, and I don't know why. <laughs> it's, it's just a really weird touch, and it almost is something that like some some little sort of humanity that these these killers still have because Cottingham isn't the only one that that's done this I've I've heard many cases where people who have murdered people will just come and there's there's just something some part of them that's still human police found shopping bags in her car and that led them to believe that maybe she had met someone at the mall and they probably had a significant part in this murder. But there was there were signs that Vogel did put up a good fight. There were bruises on her face and other there were other defensive wounds around her body. There was evidence of a struggle. Some sort of rope or tie was around her neck, and they later concluded that this is how she died. She died from asphyxiation due to strangulation. And because of this, they were able to conclude that the murder did happen in the vehicle. But unfortunately, there really wasn't any more evidence than that. And there the the scene was really really clean. It was no evidence, no no blood, nothing other than really the body and the, the marks on the body. And so the case went cold at this point. And her murder would later be connected to Cottingham but it would not be for quite a long time. But at around this time, uh, Cottingham really liked to talk at work. He was bragging about all the things that he was doing at these sex clubs and other things that he claimed to do to, do to sex workers, and among other things and parts of his sexual deviancy that he really just blabbed on and on about. But co-workers took everything that he said with a grain of salt. They didn't believe most of what he said because a majority of it, almost all of it, was just so outlandish and so awful that to like a normal mind, they didn't think really much anything of it because they thought no one could actually do that. That's completely awful and terrible. But it was later that he wasn't lying about everything. It was later shown that. Other problems that Cottingham had. He was constantly jittery, so he was anxious all the time. He was moving. He was at work. He was constantly rocking back in his chair and bouncing his foot up and down. It annoyed all of his co-workers, and he had an alcohol problem. He was arrested in 1969 for a DUI. He served 10 days in jail and had a $50 fine because of it. And after this is when he met Jeanette, and it it would later come to be that he would marry Jeanette on May 3rd, 1970. So, new wife, new lifestyle, right? Maybe? Hopefully? They got married in the Our Lady of Lord's Church in Queens Village, New York, and she had, she was described as having dark hair and large chesticles. And this is important because this would kind of later become what Cottingham's target victim like profile became but they him and Jeanette moved into an apartment together it was Ledgewood Terrace in Little Ferry New Jersey remember that it becomes important and there they enjoyed a nice suburban lifestyle he still commuted to New York City for work at Blue Cross and Blue Shield and everything seemed pretty normal but 
he still was not a strictly law-abiding citizen. On August 21st, 1972, Cottingham was arrested for shoplifting from Stern's department store in Paramus, New Jersey. And again, he had to pay a $50 fine. I don't think that he had to serve jail time for this one. I think it was just the fine. Among his troubles with the law and potentially troubles at home, he was having affairs. His wife was no longer fulfilling his sexual desires as they got worse and worse and darker and darker. And that was because his paraphilia was becoming worse. He needed bigger excitement to fill his desires. On September 4th, 1973, he was arrested for robbery, assault, and sodomy of a sex worker. But she never showed up to court, so the charges were inevitably dropped. And in my head, this might have given Cottingham the idea to specifically target sex workers, which eventually he did. Cottingham told his wife at the time that the police had the wrong guy and that they had it all wrong. He said that either they were lying and trying to frame him or they really, they, well, they obviously had the wrong person, is what he was saying to her. And because of that, she didn't divorce him, at least not yet. <laughs> And because of them not divorcing, they had their first child on October 15th, 1973. They called him Blair. A few months after the birth of Blair, Cottingham was charged with unlawful imprisonment and robbery of another sex worker. And again, charges were dropped after she never showed up to court. So his wife knew about this one too, and things at home were not great because of it, because now he was charged against two sex workers, and maybe she was starting to not believe him, or I don't know exactly the case, but she was kind of suspicious. So they really needed a fresh start, and they were hoping that they could get it. So in 1975, the Cottinghams moved into a three-bedroom rental house in hopes of getting a fresh start with their, their son. They moved into 29 Freeland Street in Lodi, New Jersey. It was a nice place for a middle-class family, and generally it was a pretty nice neighborhood. Um, there, yeah, it was a nice place. But, and it was in this house that their second son was born on March 28th, 1978, and they named him Scott. And after a while, they also had a daughter. Um, their third child, and their only daughter, was born on October 13th, 1976 and they named her Jenny. And because of these children, because of their births, and because he might have actually been a decent father at this point, Cottingham kept a low profile. So he wasn't committing any more murders, at least not that none that we know about. And I couldn't, didn't find anything to say whether or not he was still uh, doing things with sex workers and going to the sex clubs or not. But his low profile definitely would not last for very long. I wrote in my notes so much for a fresh start. Things started to get a lot worse. He was definitely starting to live a double or maybe even a triple life. In 1978, he started having an affair with Barbara Lucas, and this went on from 1978 till 1980, so for like two or three years. At this time, he was raping, killing, and mutilating women. He would be able to go back to his wife and family or his girlfriend as if nothing abnormal was going on. But this was because he was extremely charming and charismatic as well as extremely narcissistic. And he was also an extreme uh, psychopath. So the concoction of all of those just made for a really 
I wouldn't say easier time to live like a double or triple life, but it he he made it work, and I don't know how because I have one life, and I can't even I don't know, I can't even keep track of my one life. So having three, no thanks. Cunningham used his charisma to lure people and to manipulate them. Cunningham was later quoted to have said, quote, Sometimes I'd go with girls for two, three months, then we'd just part ways. But sometimes I would kill them, and nobody knew a thing. His psychopathy, confidence, and charisma is what he kept, really kept his double life going. He kept his lives very separate and did not slip up in mixing them together for quite a while. Which, again, how? <laughs> I don't understand it. His next victim happened a few weeks before Christmas in 1977. The 26-year-old went missing from the apartment that she had shared with her husband. Her husband at this time was away for business reasons, and she planned to meet with her mother-in-law, but she never showed up. And it was then that the alarm was raised and police were called. The initial investigations showed no signs of any struggle in the apartment, and an eyewitness gave testimony that they saw her getting into a car with a man who looked like her husband. So everyone just kind of assumed that it was her husband. This threw police off of the correct trail because they began looking into a, the husband as a suspect. But her husband had an airtight alibi. It wasn't him. With this, the case went cold. And later, this case would be connected to Cottingham because of the calling cards that he left behind. But at this point, it was just a cold case and no one really knew. Her name was Mary Ann Carr. Mary Ann Carr's last hours were a horrific event. Cottingham had somehow coerced her to getting into his car. Maybe he Ted Bundied it and asked for advice or help. And then when she went to help him, he grabbed her. It's not exactly clear. Um, but after abducting Carr... Cottingham took her to a hotel. Once there, he raped, tortured, and murdered her. Most likely, this happened over the course of hours. So it was a long, drawn-out event. And we will continue to see that he's really reveling in her pain. And this is part of his psychotic, complete, sadistic desire for sex. After Cottingham was satisfied, he murdered Carr and dumped her out her body outside in the parking lot. Her body was found on December 16th, 1977, in the parking lot between the curb and the chain link fence surrounding the parking lot. So it was out on the edges, kind of it was just out there. <laughs> but the body her body was covered in wounds. There were ligature marks on her hand and ankles from handcuffs, and ligature marks on her neck. And this indicated possible strangulation as a cause of death, but they weren't entirely sure yet. Her body was also covered in bruises on her shoulders, arms, breasts, thighs, and her right cheek. There was a, They were all severely hemorrhaged, which suggests severe blunt force trauma. Other odd things that they found, the left leg of her otherwise very crisp and perfect white pants were cut, as if maybe the killer had potentially done that. Also, a bunch of her hair had been cut and fell on her right thigh. Which is weird. Why would you just cut her hair? I don't know. I don't get it. 
Her shoes, coat, and purse were all missing, and later they found duct tape residue on her mouth. And probably one of the most telling pieces of evidence, there were severe bite marks on her breasts. And later, this would be one of the things that they used to connect Cottingham to all of these cases. This, was become, this became one of Cottingham's calling cards. But on September 23rd, 1978, Cottingham strikes again. This time, he went for Karen Schilt. Karen Schilt was a pregnant barmaid who was working to support herself and her future child. She worked at a bar and grill, and at the time of her murder, on September 23rd, she left work at 6.30pm. She visited her boyfriend and then came back to work. She left work at around 8.30pm, and then she went to a different bar to, you know, she had a long day, sometimes it's okay to go and get a drink afterwards. So Schultz arrived at a different bar just after 8.30. She quickly struck up conversation with a man who claimed to be John Schaefer, who asked if she was a working lady, aka a sex worker. Well, she said no, but he didn't really care. Of course, this John Schaefer was Richard Cottingham. He disguised himself in a shaggy wig and used the alias, but he didn't care that she said she was not a sex worker. At this point, he was trying, he, his victim profiling became more and more just sex workers, but he, he was, he really wanted it that night, apparently. At around 9 p.m., Schultz started asking personal questions about Cottingham, his family, or, well, about John Schaefer. <laughs> and uh, his life, and Richard Cottingham did not like that. So that's when Schultz mysteriously became sick. Hmm, I wonder why. She leaves the bar and starts heading home, but Cottingham follows her. Trying to appear as just a friendly person she met in the bar, he offers her a ride, and because she was so out of it and not... She really was would not was would not be able to get home on her own. So she reluctantly agrees that that she really needs this ride home. So she accepts it from her and after getting into the car, she passes out almost immediately. It's obvious to me, I don't know if it's obvious to you, but she was definitely drugged. He spiked her drink for sure. She regains consciousness as they were on the New Jersey Turnpike turning going back to around where he lived in New Jersey. She wakes up to Cottingham, shoving three blue and red capsules into her mouth, and these drugs were later turned out to be Tuinol, I think is how you say it. And this was the date rape drug of choice, and this was before the time of roofies. When she regained consciousness, she feels a burning pain in her breast, and after that, she passes out again. She remained unconscious until the next day at 9 a.m. when Little Fairy Police Department Patrol Officer Raymond Auger finds her stuffed in a drainage ditch behind a car and left for dead. And this was in the parking lot at the Ledgeview Terrace Apartment Buildings, which police didn't know it at the time and they didn't put it together, but this is, this apartment building is where Cottingham used to live. 
but obviously they they weren't looking for him as a suspect at this time so they didn't realize that they didn't put it together but her body was obviously arranged in stage in a provocative way her shirt was pulled all the way up exposing her breasts and one one of them had been severely bitten and burnt by cigarettes and in addition to that her pants were down at her ankles she was missing her coat, scarf, and purse, and later it was found out that she was missing a prized ring as well. And this is just a note that I made, like, it was, she was missing almost the same items as Cunningham's last victim, which I just found was interesting, because he takes the clothes and the purses and all of that stuff from, from his victims, and later like comes back to haunt him but Schilt survived this encounter but her life was destroyed she received life saving medical attention at Hackensack Hospital but she couldn't remember much because of the concoction of drugs that were in her system tests showed the cocktail of drugs in her system included psychobarbital and amobarbital these were sedatives used in physician assisted suicides i think it's also in a lot of euthanizations of dogs and other other animals that need to be euthanized and it's also the same drug linked to many celebrities including uh, Judy Garland is the one that I put down because of these drugs she could not give a clear description of the man she could gave a vague one but that was all that she could really give them and again there really was no evidence except for this so because of that case went cold. It was at this point that Cottingham changed his ways, but not in a good way. He specifically started targeting sex workers exclusively. Cottingham, at this point, was using Times Square to prowl for victims, and some of you might say, Times Square, that's like a big touristy thing now. How how could that, like, why? Why, why Times Square? Like, it's a, but Times Square was very different back then than it is today at that point it was it was it was a big tourist point it was taken over by the sex industry it was filled with peep shows live sex shows porn stores and other erotic sexual clubs and uh new york and specifically times square at this time were becoming the human lust and sexual deviancy as well as just regular sex but there were sex workers everywhere not only sex workers, but there were drugs everywhere, crime everywhere. A lot of these places were bought and run by the mafia. So it was, it would, and at this point, this was kind of prime time for the mafia. There were several families um, running it, running the streets in New York. So all in all, it was extreme. There was extreme violence everywhere all the time. And it, there was severe human trafficking, sex working. There was lots of sex workers there were it was just everywhere but most most sex workers were from the midwest who were trying to come to new york to become dancers singers actresses or they were just looking for a better place a a place to start over a new life anything like that but most ended up with a pimp and not a producer the girls would come to times Square with little to no money and because of that they did what they had to do, so almost all of them 
got, got taken up by pimps almost immediately and became sexual. And Cottingham uses the girl's needs for money against them. He would wave huge wads of cash to lure them in, and then he would he would do what he wanted with them, unfortunately. Cottingham believed that they had few, if any, people that would miss them. He said he didn't care about their suffering or the suffering of the victim's friends and families. It was all a game to him. He really did not care. And his paraphilia were becoming worse and worse, and at this point, bondage and rape were the only things that got him going and that aroused him, and it needed to be worse than ever, and... It definitely became worse and worse as time went on. His next victim, her name is Susan Geiger. She was a sex worker, and Cottingham approached her and offered $200 for the night. But she was booked that night. But she gave her number to him and said that, just call me tomorrow, we can make arrangements. So on October 10th, 1978, the next day, they arranged place a time and place to meet they met at midnight at the alpine motel after that they headed to an irish pub and just kind of started talking they i don't know they were just meeting each other having a good night and because of this cottingham lulled her into a false sense of security he used a pseudonym jim and started telling him all about his made-up life and she teamed she seemed to trust him she trusted him enough that she got up to use the bathroom and left all, like her stuff there which says a lot uh -huh. but when she was gone Cottingham ordered screwdrivers and drugged her drink he would later say that he hoped that the orange juice would mask the taste of the drugs so that she wouldn't suspect anything but he spiked her drink and Geiger was almost immediately affected and from this moment on her memory was very fuzzy but she can remember a green thunderbird which is his car and this is important because later a very similar thing happens she regained consciousness to find Cottingham sexually assaulting her and whipping her with a garden hose she was in and out of consciousness for a while and all the while she was being sexually assaulted tortured raped all all of the above Geiger remained consciousness in the afternoon on October 12th and she found herself on the floor of room 28 of the airport motel in Hackensack, New Jersey. She was bleeding from her rectum, vagina, breasts, face, and mouth. Her earrings had been ripped out of her ears entirely, and her purse was missing. Understandably, she immediately called the police, I would too. Police came and searched, and they did. This time, the, the crime scene wasn't entirely spotless. They did find towels with semen at the crime scene. But at this time, unfortunately, there was no DNA te technology at any point. So really all this told them was that the attacker was blood type O, which always a less common blood type, but really that didn't tell them much. Very similar to Cunningham's previous victim, Geiger was also pregnant. She had a very substantial bite on her breast and was also covered in bruises most likely from the garden hose. And this, her case and Schultz's case, the, her, his, uh, Cottingham's previous victim, were extremely similar. But unfortunately, police did not put these two together yet. And other than that, there really wasn't a whole lot more evidence. And 
and she was drugged, so she really didn't remember almost anything except for the Thunderbird car. And yeah, because of that, the case went cold because they really had nothing to go on. And this is when things really started to get bad in Cunningham's life. He really started going off the rails about a year after this murder. In the end of November 1979, a man claiming to be Carl Wilson of Merlin, New Jersey, booked a room at the Travel Inn Motor Lodge. He booked room 417. This place is now called Travel Inn Hotel New York, which is on 42nd Street. It's about two blocks away from Times Square, and it's a perfect place for someone to hunker down and not be noticed to pretty much do whatever he wants. He was described as a man and maybe his 30s and at the time that like he was registering for the room person behind him in line kind of thought he was a little weird so she kind of put him in her memory and was able later to remember what he looked like and gave a description to the police which eventually led to a composite sketch that got distributed but he this man put the do not disturb sign on his door and really wasn't ever heard from again but after booking the room, Carl Wilson, who really was obviously Richard Cottingham, he picked up two sex workers. These two sex workers, out of these two sex workers, only one was eventually identified. She was identified as Dita Godarzi, who was a 23-year-old immigrant. She had a dark hair and high cheekbones and large breasts, which was very, very much Cottingham's type. And there also was unidentified Jane Doe. She was really just a woman in her late teens or early 20s. Some some people guess that maybe it was even even as young as 16, but somewhere, somewhere around that age. On December 2nd, 1979, both women went into his room, probably under the ruse of money for for uh, sexual acts, but when while they were there, both were raped, tortured, and eventually murdered. Both had slash wounds covering their torsos, and they were shallow wounds, and they were meant to torture and cause pain. He really, really enjoyed this torture, and this, this was what he was trying to get out of it. He would later say that it wasn't the murder that got him off. He really only murdered people because it was either to protect himself to not get caught or necessity because they threatened to like call the police and give him give them his description stuff like that but yes he enjoyed the torture he eventually murdered them but he drew it out into a long event later it was proven that they didn't even die at the same time meaning one of them watched as he murdered the other it wasn't clear which one died first but they definitely did not die at the same time. The murderer wound for Gadarzi was a puncture wound to the back that punctured her lungs. She basically asphyxiated on her own blood. It's not entirely clear what the Jane Doe's, how she died, but she definitely murdered, was murdered at his hands. After murdering them, he mutilated their bodies. He removed their heads and hands, he put each woman on their separate beds and put accelerant on their torsos. After this, 
he set them on fire. Later, these women's clothes were founded, folded neatly by the bathtub, or in the bathtub, some, some sources say. Which is weird. This is, again, neatly folded clothes, just like the first, the first murder that we talked about. And it's just some weird sense of humanity in them, and I personally, I don't get it. But yeah, it's the same thing he did with Vogel's clothes, except Vogel was in the car, so he put them underneath her. But Cottingham put the heads and the hands in a duffel bag that he carried with him, and he got the heck out of Dodge. Police were actually stopped Cottingham, because it was like three in the morning, and they were suspicious, so they, they asked him what he was doing while he's standing there with this duffel bag, because he, was, he, he wasn't he was even in his car or anything. He was just taking a stroll out in the street. But he said that he was just having a good time, and he was going out to get something to eat because he was hungry. And they believed him, because there wasn't any much of anything else that, like, told them otherwise. This always seems to happen. It happened with Dahmer, Bundy, the Golden State Killer, and many others, where they've gotten pulled over by police or police searched their apartment in the case of Dahmer or Bundy and uh, the Golden State Killer. They got pulled over while they had bodies either in the back seat or in the trunk or something, but they're never found. And that's just, that's outrageous to me, but not funny, but it's ironic. I don't know. Firefighters arrived on the scene shortly after. James Rogers was the first firefighter on the scene. And he went in, and he saw two bodies, and grabbed the one that was just closer, closest to the door, closest to him. He pulled her out into the hall, and was preparing to give mouth-to-mouth, when he realized there was no head at all. He described it as the worst thing he's ever seen, and later had to undergo trauma counseling because of what he had seen. It was concluded that the bodies were soaked in lighter fluids, and that the heads and hands had been removed with almost surgical accuracy. This definitely suggests that he took his time and savored their pain. But again, like like a lot of the other cases, there wasn't really any more evidence other than that. It was weird, but they didn't really have anything to go on. So the case kind of went cold, and at this point, the, the bodies were still unidentified, because without the heads or the hands, it was really hard to identify these bodies. But police took the clothes that had been found in the bathroom, and they put them on mannequins. And they made posters with pictures of the clothes, asking if anyone recognized them. Someone eventually came forward, saying that they recognized Godarzi's clothes. Using this tip, using this tip, police were able to identify Godarzi's bodies with x-rays. So, Godarzi definitely was identified, but the other Jane Doe was not, unfortunately. And after this point, he just gets worse and worse. At this point, there is nothing that to the police shows as if there's anything conne being connected. There were several cases, but they, they hadn't put them together yet. And so it just became a whole bunch of cold cases. It was at this point that he really started ramping it up. And I think I'm gonna leave it there for part one. This is probably gonna be a two, maybe a three-parter, we'll see, probably more like a two-parter. But yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this part as much as I did. Sorry that maybe it's not so great because it's just a solo episode, but I'm trying to do what I can with what I have it. But I was, 
I really liked this case. I spent like a few weeks to probably closer to around a month. I actually read a book. I will talk more about it in part two, but it was a really, really good informative book on this case and I really enjoyed it. So I will definitely give you the name of the book and the author in part two. But yeah, so I think that's pretty much it from my end. We're probably going to have more solo sodes, so I'll hopefully get better at them. It definitely feels weird not having Tori here to help, like, commentate and to, to give her live reactions, but we're, I'm trying to make do, and she will definitely be back, hopefully soon. I'm going to try to arrange more times with her to record, but yeah. Alright, if you want to see more... Go check us out on Instagram at CNHPod. We have Facebook, CNHPod, Twitter, CNHPodcast. And if you have a case suggestion or if you want to start a conversation, feel free to reach out. We have a Gmail at CNHPodcast. Wait, no. CNHpod at gmail.com. I think I hopefully did all of those right. <laughs> I, I used to mess them up. Hopefully I did that right. But yeah, so well, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Part two, hopefully coming out soon. So yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And I will see you soon, hopefully. Go listen to all our episodes if you haven't listened to all our episodes. They're really cool. Okay, bye.